Those are some great words there at the end. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. And the reason we can know that is that, uh, making sure I'm on here, uh, is that uh, it's the promise of God. And God keeps his promises. And we want to look at that today because God keeps his promises uh, in all the scriptures. We see it time and time again, including in the scripture that we read just a moment ago. If you'll turn your Bibles there to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, you'll notice this falls very close on what we looked at last week as we thought about Thanksgiving. And we looked at a place where there is a great scene of Thanksgiving and praise. As David is now the consolidated king over United Kingdom in Jerusalem, and he says, uh, there's something we need. If God is going to be at the center of who we are as a people, then the ark of God's presence needs to be at the center of where we are, at, in our capital, in Jerusalem. And so they send for the ark, or they go to get the ark. It's a, a big national event, and huge, huge crowds go, but of course, they fail. Because they have not read the Word of God. David has much enthusiasm and he has good motives. But you see there is sometimes danger in enthusiasm and good motives without a clear biblical foundation. And David who always, I mean there are some noted slips for David of course, but David was a man after God's heart. He was a man who desired to know God and to serve God. And he wanted that ark there. He was sincere about that. And I think we'll see today again David is sincere in a desire, but... He needs to find out God's desires, and sometimes David's quick to move before doing so. And so we see again uh, in that text, he, they bring the Ark of the Covenant, and of course Uzzah tries to steady it and drops dead, and everybody is terrified as it is an evident display of the holiness of God. And whenever God is seen in His holiness, whenever uh, really any appearance of any measure of holiness is seen to man, man trembles and usually falls to the ground, uh, even the angels coming, right? And uh, you see people all the time trembling in fear, trembling. And so you can imagine the fear that ran throughout all of Israel as they heard this story of one who touched the Ark of the Covenant and died. And so they had to regroup. They had to figure out how to move this Ark. And so they went back. And I think it's something to David's credit that he didn't just give up on the mission, he went back, he said, okay, we need to study, study the Scriptures. How is the ark to be moved? And they found out. And so three months later, with a proper knowledge of the way to proceed, David gathers the people and they finally bring the ark into Jerusalem. And it is an opportunity for celebration, for worship and for praise. And they do worship and praise. And David leads the effort. David is they're foremost among them praising and worshiping. He writes a, a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. And they celebrate a meal together. It's a beautiful scene. And then if you continue to read uh, chapter 16, you read about the ministering before the ark and getting everything prepared, this tent, if you will. And we come to chapter 17 and what we read a moment ago. And so as we think about this text, I want to read it again. It's an important text a text we try to come back to regularly because it does say a lot to us of the promise of God and its sure and certain fulfillment. So, having discussed what went on in chapter 16, the chroniclers write this, Now it came to pass, when David was dwelling in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. 
Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and shall plant them, and they shall dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Also, I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we begin this morning, I want us to think about three points. First of all, David's sincere desire. David's sincere desire. Second of all, God's surprising answer. And finally, God's amazing promise. So as we begin chapter 17, we would want to reflect back on what we spoke about last week just a little bit and think about how David has been through many ups and downs in his life from the glories of, uh, you know, the the Valley of Eli and, and great victory and the crowds gathering and cheering David even above Saul to being on his run, right? Being on run for his life from Saul and hiding in caves and wherever he can go, even at one point having to act like a madman just to survive. And then, of course, he establishes a, a kingdom in Hebron, but it takes a while before David can establish his reign over all of Israel and have a united kingdom. And so we see Uh, All of this has taken place, and David has uh, gone to war against the enemies of Israel and has had success, and now he reigns, and it's a time of peace, relief from the enemies uh, that they've been dealing with for so long, and David can turn to some thoughts like, how should we order life? How should we conduct ourselves? How should we order the worship of God in Jerusalem? And he says, we need the ark. And he brings the ark. All these great events have happened in the life of David. And David is in his home, thinking about the luxury of what a king lives in. And rightly so. I mean, we think about it. There is a 
uh, a level of, of home that is appropriate, I guess, for the dignity of a king. And David has that. He has a house made of cedar. And cedar was a precious wood. It was an expensive wood. I guess it still is. But particularly in those days, a cedar had to be brought over long distances from places like Lebanon. And you would build uh, this nice paneled house out of this. And David is looking at what he has. And for some reason, his mind turns to the ark of the Lord. The very ark of the presence of God amongst his people. And David asks, I believe, a very sincere question. Is it right that I live in such a beautiful palace? Such a well-appointed palace? Something that's taken artisans and craftsmen time to build at great cost? Is it right that I live here while God's ark is in a tent? Now I think that's a sincere problem for David. David says, I'm a king, I am the king, and I have a a nice home, but is it right that the great king, the one who is over his people, even above me, is it right that he dwells in a tent? You know, you wouldn't expect to go to a foreign land and meet the foreign secretary, and he's got a huge mansion, and he takes you to the king, and he's living in a tent. You would think something's off there, right? And David's seeing that. He's saying, I'm important, but I'm not God. And that ark represents the very presence of God amongst His people. Shouldn't it be in a nicer place? Shouldn't there be a more permanent dwelling place? A more richly appointed dwelling place? Shouldn't there be something nice? So David has this sincere question, and he asked it, doesn't he? I mean, it starts out right there at the beginning of the chapter. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. So I think David's heart's in the right place, isn't it? David desires the glory of God. He desires that that appearances would reflect God's impeccably high stature in Israel's in the life of Israel, I should say. And so I think David has this sincere question. Another way of asking this: Why should I, being a mere man, have cedar walls and ceilings? while the presence of God, high and exalted, is in a tent. I think David understood that in the days of travel, and God speaks of those days, you had to have a tabernacle because it had to move. But David says our idea is now the ark has a resting place here in Jerusalem, in the city that God has given us. Shouldn't it now have a permanent place to reside, a place that's nice? So David just couldn't justify the disparity And so he says to to Nathan, something along the order of, we have to do something about this. And we don't know exactly the words because they're not given to us. But whether or not David even gets that far, maybe the text here reflects 100% the conversation. And Nathan knows where he's going and says, listen, do what's in your heart to do. God is with you, David. You put the interests of the Lord first. You care about the Lord's glory. That's a good thing. If you want to build a permanent temple, build it. Nathan the prophet immediately agrees with the sentiment. And what's amazing is nobody again stops to say, maybe we should consult God about this. Maybe we should spend some time in prayer and reflection. Think oftentimes we think, well, it's a good idea. And it is a good idea. In fact, it is a godly idea because God will desire this to be done. But David never stops to ask if he's the one who should do it. 
Nathan never stops to ask, is David the one who should do it? So Nathan says, God is with you. Do what's in your heart. God has shown him favor. And it's an, it's an idea that seems noble, seems uh, to respect the glory and majesty of God. In fact, it does do all those things. So Nathan assumes, as David does, this is what we should do. And yet, as we come to our second point, God has a surprising answer here. A surprising answer. And uh, this is not unusual that God answers in ways that are hard for us to understand. We get the answer in the scriptures as to why David can't be the one. But they both have assumed in the wrong. In what had to be a shocking moment for Nathan, God says to him, "Uh, you need to wait a moment on this. You need to go back to David and tell him, no, he cannot do this thing. This happens the very night in which Nathan has said, hey, listen, God would have to be in this plan, wouldn't he? It's got a noble intent. It's it's, uh, glorying God. It's doing all these things, right? It's, It's a good thing. And so this very night, Nathan hears God says, no. Don't do this. It's not for you to do. Go tell David that he shall not build me a house. He shall not build me a house. And God reasons with David through Nathan the prophet. God inquires where David has ever heard that God needed this to be done. Where has God ever asked David to do this? And he walks through the history, doesn't he, and say, uh, For since the beginning of my dealings with you as a nation, I've traveled from place to place by tent, from tabernacle to tabernacle, as I instructed David. As I have instructed the people, I said, move from place to place, from tent to tent, and from tabernacle to tabernacle. Where have I ever asked any of the judges to do anything other than that? And so I I can imagine this feels like a rebuke, doesn't it, of Nathan and of David. But I think we would be missing the point if we saw that. I mean, there is some measure in which he's saying no, right? That's a form of rebuke anytime you get told no, I guess. But I think we would need to be careful. God is not saying David's wishes here are wrong. He's just saying, I didn't ask you to do this. He's not saying that it doesn't, isn't a valid point. He's just saying it isn't necessarily for you to do. Where have I ever asked you to do this? I think God knows David's heart. He knows that David wants to worship God and bring glory to God, that his heart is in the right place. But it also shows us that sometimes just because we think something's a good idea, it may not be what we're supposed to do. There are lots of times that we can make the situation worse by thinking we're going to get involved and do good. And so we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek the Lord's direction in all matters. And I think one place we find David uh, erring is right there, that David didn't do that. And neither did Nathan. They just assumed it's a good idea. They just assumed it was the right thing to do. But ultimately what God is trying to remind David is, David, I'm the one who appoints how things are to be done. I'm the one who lays out the plan. I'm the one who calls you to follow what I have given you to do. He says, uh, I'm the one who loved you, David. Now I think this is interesting when you start thinking about what God argues here. God says, you're wanting to do me a kindness. 
You're wanting to take care of me. You're wanting to make sure uh, that I am given the honor that I deserve. And that's a good thing. But remember this, David. I'm the one who raised you up. I don't know if maybe God's detecting something in David's heart there, maybe a seed of a problem, that David's going to take care of God. He's going to build him the house he needs. I don't know. But it is interesting the direction God goes here. I'm the one who brought you up from nothing, David. I'm the one who took you out of the field, watching over sheep and put you over a nation. I'm the one who took you out of the the fields and put you in a palace. I gave you the house that you're in, David. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you rulership. I gave you all the things that you have. Who told you I needed anything? I think, again, he's trying to remind David the way this relationship works is God is the provider, not David. God is the provider. God is the one who raised David up. God is the one who provides. If there is providence in this story, it's not David. It's God who is providing every step of the way. And David needs to remember that. There is providence in this story, but David is not the provider. God unmistakably says that he is the one who will provide. He'll provide you, David, with a kingdom. He'll provide you, David, with the subduing of your enemies. He'll provide you, David, with a place to live and a place for the people of God to find home and rest. He says more than that, doesn't he? He says, I'll provide you with a lineage. I'll provide you with seed. I'll provide you with a line of kings. There's a great irony in all this, isn't it? The chapter begins with David saying, I want to build the Lord a house. And if there is any bit of a small rebuke, it's the Lord saying, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. There's going to be a house built, but you're not the one who's to build it. I'm going to build a house, meaning your lineage, your royal line, the household of David shall be built. But again, David, understand it's built by God, not by you. So again, we see this over and over. God says, I am the one who is building something. And you have a place in it, David. By my grace, you have a place in it. A lineage, a a line of royalty which will rule and reign forevermore. Forevermore. Without end. You seek to build me a house. I'm building you something far greater. Something far greater. You have a significance, David, that you can't even understand yet. You can't even understand. So God's no doesn't mean it's a bad idea because God says, oh, and by the way, there's one who will come from your line who will do this. Now, I think this is one of those already not yet prophecies, uh, even in the next generation, where Solomon comes and builds a temple and you see a semi-fulfillment of it in the person of Solomon. But ultimately, this is pointing to Jesus Christ. He is the one who will come and do the work. There's all kinds of interesting promises in here. I won't take my favor away from uh, the one coming from you like I did from the one who came before you, a reference to Saul. He says, the one who comes from you shall not lose my favor. He shall reign forevermore. You know, Solomon, it's an interesting story, didn't end well, did it? A lot of great things happened uh, during Solomon's reign, but it didn't end well. But there's one coming even beyond Solomon. All of it pointed to, I mean, when you look at 
when you look at David and, and all of that pointing forward to one who would come, the one who is a descendant of David and yet greater than David. Jesus uh, asked that question, doesn't he, of the, of the scholars in his day. Oh, you explain this one to me. How is it that David refers to his descendant as Lord? My friends, what he's trying to tell them is the temple will be built, but it's not by you, David. It's going to be built by one coming from you, one coming after you, one of your seed. Now, that brings us to this amazing promise. God promises a son, one who will reign after David, and who will be the one to build the temple. And we can actually see it as we read forward in the histories. We see Solomon, and he comes and builds a marvelous temple, a great temple. In fact, the temple's so great that when they come back from exile and they build a second temple, there's a little bit of weeping going on, isn't there? Because they're like, it's just not as magnificent as the temple we had before. The old men that could still remember the first temple, they wept because it wasn't quite as great as Solomon's temple, they felt. It wasn't quite to the same footprint as Solomon's temple. It wasn't as impressive. So Solomon will come. But, my friends, we want to recognize something important. That at the end of the exile and, and as they return into Israel... We want to think back about what we mentioned last week. The Chronicles have an interesting place, don't they, in the story of Israel. We pointed this out last Sunday. Chronicles is a history book written to a returning people. A later addition to the canon of history, if you will, you've got Samuel and Kings written before the exile. The Chronicles are written later. And it's interesting, isn't it, that again, it's pointing to something that would seem to be absent in the lives of, of the returning people. It says there'll be a king from the line of David over Israel forevermore. And they look around and they say, right now, we're not even sure we have a king. We certainly don't have a Davidic king. And as you read the tail end of the history of the people after the return, it's not a a long line of great kings, is it? Many wicked kings. So you might ask, Well, first of all, where's the Davidic kingship that were promised? And second of all, why would the chroniclers, again, just like with the ark, which is now gone, why would they point so heavily, so heavily to this promise of a royal line given to David that shall never end? When they look around and you think they would say, you know, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. We don't have a Davidic king on the throne. How can this be? How can God's promise be fulfilled where He promised a Davidic royal line lasting eternally, everlasting? How can the people take the books of the Chronicles seriously? I think that's a good question. What were the chroniclers thinking? You know, if we were thinking from a literary criticism perspective, the question they would ask is, why wouldn't they immediately reject these books? And say you're talking about an ark that no longer exists. You're talking about a Davidic kingship that no longer exists. These books obviously are not inspired. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do that? Well, I think one of the things that we can recognize is that in accepting these books, they believe that promise was still good. The people of Israel believed that promise was still a good promise. That there would be one who comes to reestablish the Davidic line over Israel. One 
who would reclaim this promise and fulfill it as God works through His people. A miraculous promise held on to by those who went through exile, those returning from exile, that one day the messianic Davidic king would emerge who is both David's heir and Lord, and that he shall reestablish the reign over Israel, and that his rule and reign would be established forevermore. Now, that great and miraculous promise was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, David's greater son, not Solomon, Christ the son of David, the eternal king, the prince of peace, the one that it can be said of his government, there shall be no end. My friends, I want to close this morning by talking about how this enters the Christmas promise. The Christmas promise. It's being retold in the Chronicles to a people who desperately need hope. A people who might be tempted to say, these promises, they didn't mean anything. They're being reminded here that God has made a promise. And no matter what the outlook is, you can trust in the promise of God. That no matter what the circumstances that you find yourself in, God is still on His throne. And He's still at work in the midst of His people. He can be trusted to do what He has promised to do. My friends, one of the interesting things that we see over and over again in the Bible is that God keeps His promises. Even at times that it feels that they are impossible to be kept. To a point where Sarah would even laugh at the idea that a year later the promise of God would be kept. And yet she's reminded, is anything too hard for God? Anything. I mean, I think we forget sometimes who we serve. We start thinking in uh, terms of our own mental calculus and can we work out the problem? And we get to a point where we say, I can't see any way it can be worked out. And then I think, well, it's a good thing that it's not in my hands. It's a good thing I'm not the one having to work it out. But that God is. And God says here again, do not despair. Put your trust in the one who is always trustworthy. Place your faith in the one who is ever faithful. I think, again, that's what he's trying to remind David of. David, I don't need you to take care of me. I'm the one taking care of you. I don't need Israel to take care of me. I'm the one taking care of Israel. I'm the one who called Israel out from amongst the nations. I'm the one who has blessed them and given them a land, given them great victories over nation after nation, king after king, Og and Sidon and all those kings that we fought years ago. I gave you the victory, God is saying. I've given you victories, David, that were impossible to explain by human wisdom. How did you defeat Goliath? Well, David knew, didn't he? He said, you know, this armor that doesn't fit, it's not really going to help me. <laughs> right? If that giant gets his sword anywhere near me, this armor is not going to be of help. But he said, I do remember this. Many times as I watched over my flock and wolves or bears attacked, God gave me a steady hand and great aim. And I struck down the enemy. And I believe he'll do the same today. But I think just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, David would have said, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to go out there and defend God's honor and glory. He can do with me as he pleases. He can do with me as he pleases. And I think God is reminding David, I have been the one there all along, all along, guiding you, using you for my glory. Remember how this relationship works. Remember how this relationship works. 
So as we think about the one who is ever faithful, we remember a promise that was made of one who had come from David's line greater than David. David's descendant and yet David's Lord who would come fulfilling the promise of God made to David in this very scripture. My friends, what we remember at this time of the year is God kept His word. Why we celebrate is God kept His word. And all the hopes and promises that we have that come out of the Word of God for what happens moving forward, we can rely on because we know God keeps His Word. He never fails. He cannot fail. And so, my friends, as we enter this season, it's a season where we celebrate fulfilled promises and some promises that are still yet to be fulfilled. They are certain, and we await them. We know that we serve a God who always keeps his promises. Amen.